Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, and I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open to the book of James. Uh, chapter 5 is where we're going to be uh, looking at this, this morning. Uh, as we've been looking at James, the series is entitled Sticky Faith, and the idea is a faith that really sticks with us in every situation of life. We could call it authentic faith, genuine faith, and that's what James has uh, in mind. And boy, I just don't know of a biblical author that just hits things right to the point and uh, gets right down to uh, the thing that he wants to say. And so he's really asking two questions that we need to be asking as the early assembly had to face it, and that is this. Number one, uh, am I certain that I am a man, a woman of faith, and by that I mean that I have passed from death unto life because I have trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then number two, if the answer to that question is, well, yes, I, I've done that, I've trusted in the Lord, I've been born again. Then the question, now that you were saved by faith, are you walking by faith? For the just shall live by faith. And basically, in a very simplistic way, it's meaning we're being obedient to the word uh, of God. So those are the tests that are put before us in a very general sense. Are you in the faith? And if you are, are you walking by faith? Then he takes 15 specific tests that he puts before us. And he says, you've got to respond to what I'm presenting to you and tell me where you are in your walk of faith in regard to this specific test. Now, due to the time, instead of having 15 or 16 weeks to uh, go through and study each one in detail, uh, I've had the last four Sundays with you, and uh, we've condensed these tests down into uh, four categories. And if you see on the screen, in chapter one, he's uh, asking you to test your faith in regard to yourself. And specifically, he talks about the trials of life, he talks about temptations, and he talks about truth, how we respond to those. Then in chapter 2, he moves away from yourself, and he says, now look out around you. How do you respond to other people? And in particular, he is talking about those people that many of whom are listed in that Matthew 25, where the Lord said, the least of these my brethren. So they're the ones that kind of are the disenfranchised or whatever we want to say, the less fortunate in life. How do you respond to people like that? Then in chapters 3 and 4, he talks about the basic issues of life. And in those basic issues of life, he's talking about the words we speak. He's talking about do we operate life from a, uh, uh, from a wisdom, heavenly wisdom standpoint. Then he goes into the matter of worldliness, which really at its root thing is selfishness. And then he talks about are you doing the will of God? Do you know the will of God and are you doing it? So that's where we've been so far. And now in chapter 5, he goes to the basic philosophy of life. So when we talk about your philosophy of life, we're talking about those things that make you tick. Uh, things that, uh, the probes that move you into action. Today, a lot of the younger generation would use the word, it's my passion in life. And these are my passions. And so that's what he's uh, talking about here. And if I'm walking by biblical faith, then it seems to me in chapter 5, he's saying four things. It involves watchfulness. It involves truthfulness. 
It involves prayerfulness and it involves helpfulness. And so he's going to take one of those at a time in chapter 5 that is before us this morning. Now let's look first at watchfulness in chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Now James is focusing in verses 1 to 11 on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does something just a little bit unusual from other writers. Because what he's doing, he's going to focus first on watchfulness as it relates to the person that doesn't know the Lord. Yet the Lord is coming and he's going to answer to him. And then he moves from watchfulness on the part of the unsaved person to watchfulness on the part of the believer. You say, now Harry, I thought you said back in chapter 1, he's writing to Jews who had trusted Christ the Savior. They were born again, and now they're dispersed throughout the room, and he is. But like any local assembly, James well knew that in that group of people gathering together, there's always the wheats and there's the tares, just like at Osterville Baptist Church. So we can't assume that everybody is truly a born-again believer. Only God knows the heart. And so he's saying for those of you who are not walking with God, who are uh, passing the test, that's the ones he's addressing these first remarks to that probably don't know the Lord. And then he shifts to those who are genuinely saved. So notice in verses 1 to 6, we see watchfulness in regard to the unsaved. Watchfulness in regard to the unsaved. And I'm going to read these verses uh, before you, verses 1 to 6 of James 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Powerful words. You have laid up treasure in the last days bad point is they're not treasures laid up in heaven, they're on earth. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now notice here in verse 4, the title, the Lord of hosts, is such a majestic, magnificent title of the Lord. If you have the old King James Version and New King James Version, you remember it talked about the Lord of Sabaoth. That's not the Lord of Sabbath. It has nothing to do with the Sabbath day. The Lord of Sabaoth means the Lord of hosts. And he's talking about all, get this, all the armies of heaven. Just think about that. All the armies of heaven. And the Lord is the Lord God Almighty who can resist him as it were. And he has all the hosts, the armies of heaven at his disposal. Now, you'll notice it says that God is the judge who, verse 8, he's at hand. That says to me, imminency. And he's standing right at the door, just like he's ready to come out, verse 9. And in regard to the unsaved, they will not get away with anything before this great judge. You and I know God is not righting all wrongs today. And the unsaved person thinks about that. And listen, 
Ecclesiastes says this, because sentence is not executed speedily upon those who do evil, their mind is set to always do evil. What's that mean? I got away with it yesterday, I'll get away with it today. Huh, got away with it today, I'm going to get away with it tomorrow. And so their mind just lives toward that thing. And God has said, you're right, I'm not dealing with all sin today, but you mark it down. Every wrong thing, every sin, unless you've been born again, you will give an answer for to the great God, the judge of the universe. And so he's just reminding them about this watchfulness that's needed. Now, James already, in addressing the uh, Christians in James, remember he told them back in chapter 2 when you had the rich man that came in with all his jewelry and his fine clothing and everything, and you had the poor man come in. And he, he, he paid partiality to the rich man. He said to the poor person, you go, just go sit on the floor. That kind of is more becoming to you. You're dirty and uh, you got old garments. Just sit on the dirt floor. That won't uh, do you any hair. Now notice what he says. When you did that, when you favored and were partial to the rich, James says to that usher, he says in chapter 2, verse 6, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, in those days, and not only in those days, but in those days, the wealthy had great influence in the courts, and they were even able to manipulate the courts to sentence even an innocent, righteous person even to death. And so that's what James is talking about here. You know, somebody in a comic strip said, uh, what's the, gold, the golden rule? And the answer came out, whoever has the gold makes the rules. And that's kind of the way it is in society, isn't it? You got enough money, you make the rules. You got enough money, you can buy whatever you want to buy. How many people do we know? And I've worked in the criminal justice system for 56 years. <clears throat> and I always think of those 26 men sentenced to death on death row, just waiting Death row would call and somebody would be taken and executed. And they're wondering, when's my number going to be called? 26 were condemned to death. And then after DNA came out, it proved that every one of them was innocent. But, you know, the rich people get to do a crime. They can get the dream team. They can get the lawyers. They can pay the, and get the very best. And the poor people who have nothing can be exploited, treated unfairly. And that's what happened. He says, you've actually perverted the courts, you've bought the courts, and you've executed even the righteous person. And now here are these believers paying homage to the very people who have persecuted them and their brothers and sisters, even putting some to death. Now you'll notice uh, William Barclay tells us, and this is seen in Jesus' words back in uh, Matthew chapter 6 that Mara read from, and it's also seen here, that there were three sources of wealth back in uh, the New Testament days, and one of those sources was corn and grain, and James refers to that as to Jesus, and James says, they have rotted. So he's going to choose a word of decay for each one of those three realms in which people normally had their wealth. The corn and the grain, it's rotted. Notice in, in the verse he says, the garments, a second form of wealth, were moth-eaten. You never see a moth attacking a 
person wearing a sweater on a cold day outside. No, they attack that which is hanging in the closet, just stored away. It's unused. He says, and that's what you've done with your wealth. And now they're all moth-eaten. What good are they? And then your gold and silver they have corroded. This is an awful picture of the wealthy. Everything is corroded around them. They never heard the cries of those around them perishing and going to hell. They never heard the cry of the widow who was poor. The orphan who just begged for a piece of bread. They could have cared less. All they cared about was themselves and hoarding all their riches that were being corroded and that are going to be pulled out as a witness against them at the judgment of God. Now, let me just say a word, and I think I discovered this for myself this year after 56 years of study. What does it mean to be rich? Let me ask you a question. Do you think you're rich? Let me tell you what, what at least what I've surmised from Paul's writings, especially in the, in the epistles, especially Timothy, is this. If you have met your basic needs of life, food, shelter, clothing, If you've met your basic needs of life and you've got money left over, guess what? You're rich. Exactly. You are rich. Now, I understand after that, it's all a matter of relativity. I I get that. But I'm just saying, hey, listen, let me be, I am a very wealthy man. You probably didn't know that. I am a very wealthy man. When I look at my basic needs being met and what I have left over, I'm a very wealthy man. And so that's who the rich people are. And what was the problem with these people here? What was the problem with these rich people? They were hoarding their money. Let me say it this way. It seems to be presented to me in the scriptures, whether it's Jesus or James or Paul, that unused money is sinful money. Let me say it again. Unused money, money that has no purpose to it, so we're not talking about, do you have a savings account? What are you saving for? Not talking about that. You'll get people wiser than I and we'll give you better counsel than I will. But what I'm saying is if it's just unused money with no purpose to it, but just storing it up, that's what's called hoarding. And that's what these, I said in there, oh, you serve the thought came to me. I would love to die and have zero money in the bank account and just have it all expended for the glory of God. Now, my kids are not for that, very frankly. So uh, I share that opinion alone, all right, in, 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 in the family. But this, uh, this is so powerful here for those of you to whom God has entrusted. And don't be a hoarder. That's what these are. Don't think of just earth. Think of heaven. Don't think of time. Think of eternity. Don't think of today. Think of standing before the Lord and giving an answer. And to me, the most powerful verse in all this is verse 5. Notice what he says in verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Let that sink in. You know what he's talking about, don't you? He's talking about, think of cattle. What do they do with cattle that are going to go to the market? They just give them all the food and just get them fatter, 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 and fatter. And that cow, that stupid cow, is just eating his way, not knowing the reason he's eating so much is to get fat so they take him to the slaughterhouse. 
He has no thought about what's happening tomorrow. And James is saying to these people, you're just like that cow. You have fattened yourself for that day of slaughter, obviously oblivious to their destiny. Imagine these rich of whom he's speaking if they'd never turned their lives over to the Lord and trusted Christ. You imagine standing before the Lord God of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth, and giving an account. Well, they're going to give an account. And the mistreatment of the poor has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, verse 4, and judgment is certain. Now he moves away from watchfulness in regard to the unsaved and goes to watchfulness in regard to the saved. Now he's talking to those who say, I'm a man, I'm a woman of faith. And he's going to discuss the believer's watchfulness. And I think there's one key word that you'll see in this passage. If you had to just pluck one word out and say it's the key word, I think it's the word patience, the word patience. So we're waiting for the king. We're waiting for the Lord Jesus. And now he says in verses 7 and 8, be patient. There it is. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Patience is, is woven throughout these verses that we see here. In verse 6, these righteous believers were being persecuted, even being killed, while not even resisting their ungodly masters, employers. These employers that were not paying them what they were due, not taking care of people under them, exploiting them, using them, while hoarding the money that belonged to them and giving no thought to their needs whatsoever. James says, be, be patient, because he knew they would, could only be encouraged as they would practice this virtue of patience and waiting upon the Lord. There's going to be a lot of dark days ahead, he's telling them. They're not going to get easier. They're going to get worse. And you need to be patient. The Lord's at hand. The Lord is coming. We don't know why. It's imminent. Just be, remember, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish. God is long-suffering. He's waiting. He's calling people to himself. Now, you're hurting. You're going through trials. You just be patient. Most of you know the name of the great preacher, Dr. Philip Brooks, and uh, you've gone down to Trinity Church in Boston. You see where this man labored. He was such a faithful Bible teacher for 22 years and a pastor, well-known. He was also known because every Christmas we love to sing the Christmas carol he wrote, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He's known for that. But he was also known for being a very patient calm, tranquil uh, individual, seldom, uh, seldom rattled. And one day his friend and colleague saw him pacing the floor like a, like a caged lion. He said, what's the trouble, Dr. Brooks? And the pastor said, the trouble is I'm in a hurry and God isn't. And I thought, is there any believer that can't relate to that statement? God, give me patience and do it today, would you? I mean, most of us aren't very patient, are we? We're not very patient. And yet that's a whole thrust of this passage. i got to remind you of another thought. Please keep this in mind. Whenever and every time God ever speaks, it is always out of the context of eternity. 
always out of the context of eternity. When he gave that first promise of his beloved son who would come after a man fell into sin, and remember, he talked about the seed of the woman. When did the seed of the woman come on earth? Over 4,000 years later, God wasn't in any hurry. And when God gives a promise, as he's given many of them, as he's given to you, he's asking you to be patient. Because when he speaks, he's not speaking like you're thinking tomorrow and today. He's speaking with eternity in mind. And he's not in any hurry. Now, this touched my heart this week in a, in a very personal way. Because, you know, when I pray, and I've got something just like you, you have a prayer list, there are some things you pray for, some burdens that are heavier on you than others, right? And usually it's your loved ones, and maybe people that are lost, or whatever the case, are just people you know going through a hard time. And I can think of things I've prayed for over 30 years. Every day I can think of things for years I've been praying. And I'm always thinking, because I believe every Christian ought to expect God to answer their prayers. I really do. We pray in faith believing. Let him ask of God, but let him ask in faith. Believe in God. Don't be like the waves of the sea. And uh, believe God. But you know what came to me this, this week? It's probably there's going to be a lot of my prayers that aren't going to be answered while I'm still alive. I just kind of, I, I, I got that, I think, from the Lord. And then I began thinking about many people I've known. They prayed and prayed and God took them home. And then it was years later when their prayers uh, they, uh, the, there was the fruit of their prayers. And so God knows what he's about, and he always speaks out of a context of eternity. And uh, he's saying, be patient. Look at verse 7. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, which is at hand. Verse 11, the Lord will be compassionate and merciful to you. And think about it this way. While you're going through this time of patience, listen, and you're waiting on God, God unveils more of his character to you. You learn more about God by waiting. Okay, you learn about some of those attributes that uh, have prayed about in his prayer. You learn more about his omnipotence, his omniscience, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his gentleness. And all that time as you're learning more about uh, his character, guess what God's doing as you're patient? He's molding your character, Right? And during that time, that's the purpose of God. He's molding you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, conforming you to that image. So he says, be patient. And then he gives us three examples. Did you see them real quickly? First, verse 7, observe the farmer. What the farmer do? Farmer depended upon the early and later rains. And in this way, he was at the, full, at the feet of the full mercy of God and his provisions. He couldn't make it rain. He can't bring the rain. He can't stop the rain. He's at the mercy of God, but he's patient and he's waiting. Secondly, he says in verse 10, think of the prophets of old who endured faithfully while proclaiming the mercy and justice of God. Go back and read all about the Old Testament prophets. You know what you're going to find? Is that most of the things that they prophesied, and what did they prophesy about? They prophesied about justice. They prophesied about mercy. They prophesied about truth. And you know what they saw? They didn't see much of anything in their day. And many times their prophecies were not fulfilled. And some even of the prophecies going back 2,000, 3,000 years ago still haven't been fulfilled. And they're waiting in heaven. Waiting for that fulfillment of the prophecy. They're being even patient. 
And that's what happens when you're a prophet. Then he says, think about the testimony of Job, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfast of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Oh, how we love Job. He lost all of his, his family, his children. He lost all of his possessions. He lost his health. And all during that time, he says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Job, the patience of Job we talk about. That's who he holds up an example to you. You're going through a hard time. Consider the farmer. Reflect on those prophets. Go back 4,000 years. Read the book of Job. And they were all waiting patiently for the Lord's promise to be fulfilled. Watchfulness, patience, we are called to. It's a test. So only you can answer how you are doing in that regards. That you're watching for the coming of the Lord. You're living in light of the coming of the Lord. Things you want to see happen, prayers you want to see answered aren't being answered yet, but you're being patient because you trust. And you say, though he slay me yet, well, I trust him. Now let's move on to the second test here. It's the one of truthfulness, verse 12. Verse 12, truthfulness. Notice it says, but above all, my brothers do not swear. Now he's not talking about cussing. Okay, he's not talking about uh, that type of bad, foul language. And by the way, some of you need to clean your mouth up. You know, you really do. I'm telling you, I, I've heard some Christians talk, and I'm amazed. I mean, I'm amazed at what comes out of the mouth. Sometimes it's just plain filthy talk. Sometimes it's just, it's bad language. That's not a good testimony. Like my mother said, wash my mouth out with soap and water. Well, some of us need holy soap and holy water, don't we? But anyway, that's off on a tangent. That's not what he's talking about. So I don't know why I'm talking about it either. But he says this, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now this verse, it seems to me, as the more I got into this, I said, this is out of place, it's out of context. You know, usually you see a transition going from one subject to another. It's just kind of like he's been talking about watchfulness, then he's going to talk a lot of time talking about prayerfulness, and all of a sudden we have truthfulness in one verse. And I'm saying, where does that fit in? And the only way I can think it fits in is, what were the rich people doing? They're a bunch of liars. They're anything but integrity. They were anything but speaking through. They did swear. I swear. I, I swear this is true. He's guilty. He stole from me. James says they are liars. You want to be a man of God? You want to be a woman of faith? Yeah, watch for the Lord, but be one of truth. Now, it's apparent that James virtually quoted word for word Jesus' words. If you look at Matthew 5, 34 to 37, let me just skim over them very quickly. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven. That's what he's talking about. I swear, I swear, I, I give an oath. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, verse 35, or by the earth, verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Don't use manipulation. Negatively, both passages forbid exaggeration, truth-twisting, and doublespeak, which aims to hide the real truth. And he says, let your yes be yes and your no 
be no. If we're people saved by the God of truth, then that doesn't just stand the reason that we should be people of truth. If the Holy Spirit of truth is guiding me into all truth, shouldn't I be a man of truth? So when you look to me and I say yes or I say no, you ought to be able to walk away and say, well, he said yes, he said no, and he means it. And he's being truthful rather than saying, I wonder what he's really saying. Now, I grew up in a home with four older brothers and two older sisters. So I was picked on all my life, as any baby of the family is. I'm still picked on. I can handle it. But when, when my siblings used to question, you know, I'd say something, and you could, they were questioning whether I was telling the truth or not. Uh, what do you say? Across my heart and hope to die, point my finger to the sky, see you in the by and by, right? I swear. I, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's grave. That's what he's talking about. Scout's honor, right? All those things is what he's talking about here. That a person should never have to say any of those things to confirm to you that what they're telling is the truth. Let your yes be yes. Let your no. You know, we're back to where we started four weeks ago. Because what was James mostly concerned about for, for your life and my life? He was concerned what? Deception. He was concerned that we would deceive. Because why? I'm talking to myself all the time. So are you. I'm answering myself all the time. You know what I find myself? I find myself deceiving myself as I talk to myself and I answer myself. And that's what he's saying here. Don't be that way. Don't tell a lie. If you don't want to say anything, fine. But let your yes and your no be no. Let's go on to the third one. Prayerfulness, verses 13 to 18. Let's move through these verses. I think everyone, I, I would be willing to bet everything I have, and as I said, I'm a very wealthy man, I'd be willing to bet everything I had that if I asked this question, I know the answer you would give. If I asked you the question, do you think prayer is important? I can't imagine someone saying, I'm saying, nope, not important. Now, the next question is a good follow-up, could be, and how important do you think it is? Now, that's a, that's a far-reaching question there. I'll leave that between you uh, and the Lord. But watchfulness, truthfulness, and now prayerfulness all should be all part of my basic philosophy of life. So as a child of God, you ought to expect God to answer your prayers. And in this section of Scripture, 13 to 18, get this, the word pray or a form of prayer or pray appears no less than seven times in this section of Scriptures. So all occasions... And in all situations of life, we're called to pray, aren't we? Casting all your care upon him, he cares for you. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So everything comes to the Lord. But James mentions four, four times, four situations of life. Notice, first of all, suffering calls for prayer. Verse 13a of James 5. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Are you suffering today? Uh, is there a suffering brother or sister here today? He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, this word suffering means troubled. And it's a word that also would refer to uh, what those persecuting you would do who would beat you and pummel you. Okay, so it's, it has the evil blows that come from the outside, and you can see that in verses 4 and 6 if you go back in the context. He says, are you suffering? Let him pray. Now, keep in mind, from the very beginning, James is writing to Jewish believers who were hated people, hounded by the enemy. The Jewish brethren in Israel kicked them out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. 
They were men and women without a country. Why? Because they had put their profession of faith in Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And if that's the way you're going to be, then get out of Jerusalem, get out of Israel. But they had Jewish blood coursing through their veins, and there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the world uh, for 4,000 years. And because of that, the Gentiles in the Roman Empire also hated them. Because they weren't, even if they were Christians, they were Jewish Christians. And so they were people without any home. You talk about suffering again, all you have to do is read again the first six verses, and you'll see they're going through every kind of heartache imaginable, and they were discouraged, and they were downtrodden. James told them to continue to endure all their trials and all their troubles patiently and trust the Lord. And now he gives and exhorts them to have prayerfulness as a necessary part of their philosophy of life. So if somebody comes to you and says, I'm suffering, okay, what are you going to tell them to do to get through their suffering? Well, if you're a wise counselor, you're going to tell them, number one, is any among you suffering what? Let him pray. Prayer is going to get you through that time. Why? You're going to get a divine perspective on why God has allowed you to suffer. If you're suffering for a purpose, it gives you patience and perseverance. If you're just suffering for the sake of suffering, who wants that? What's the purpose in that? So if anyone's suffering, let him praise. Then he goes to a second area. He says, singing calls for prayer. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Praise is a form of prayer, is it not? So it may not be the petitioning, pleading form, like intercessory prayer, but it's the praising, thanking form. On the one hand, you have a suffering soul, let him pray. On the other hand, you have a joyful soul, he says, let him uh, let him praise. In fact, the word for praise is a beautiful Greek word. It's salato, from which we get the English word psalm. Uh, are you happy? Let him psalm. Now, the psalms was the hymn book of the Jewish believers, of the Jewish people. And he's saying to us, are you happy? Sing a song. Sing a hymn. Sing a chorus. That's what you do when you have a joyful thing in your life and you want to praise God. So praise is basic to spiritual comfort. The two are closely related. Now we get to the next one. I know this is the one you've been waiting for. And that is sickness calls for prayer. What's Fletcher going to say about this? I'm going to say something that's going to blow your mind. You're going to get mad at me, but it will go anyway. It won't be the first, won't be the last, and I'm done today anyway. So he says in verses 14 and 15, is anyone among you sick? How sick, James? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. You say, well, it's dealing probably with some severe, how do you know? Well, that person's dying of cancer, how do you know? He doesn't say that. He just says, is he sick? Common cold? I don't know. Sore throat? Call for the elders. Elders would be running 24 hours a day. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Why in the world that? In the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic or uh, you have a Roman Catholic past, you know this is the passage from which you get one of the seven sacraments called extreme unction. That's, well, that's the basis of this passage here. We're not going to go into that. That's not the purpose. For 55, 56 years, I'll say I started studying James 55 years ago. 
When I came to this passage in preparation, and I started back in the end of December, so it's, it's been, what, eight months I've been studying uh, James. When I came to this passage, my mind was already made up what he said because I've already done the exegesis of it several times, even in Greek class that I majored in. But then as I started this week, I, I, I kind of came to a different opinion. Because what I sometimes do and what's easy for us to do is to do eisegesis instead of exegesis. So what's different? Simple. Exegesis is simply the Greek word ex ageo. It's used in John 1.18 when it says Jesus has exegeted God the Father. What's it mean? It means Jesus, everything you want to see about God the Father, it comes out in Jesus. You got it? That's exegeo. Now, if you take the other, you substitute the different uh, uh, preposition, put eisegesis. Eisegesis means I'm going to read something into it. So a teacher of the Bible's job is to exegete the scriptures, bring out of the scriptures what God intended when he inspired it by the Holy Spirit. Got it? That's exegesis. Eisegesis, when I got my mind made up what I want to say or what I believe about it, and then I read into that passage what maybe it doesn't say. That's not my job. It's not your job. It's to bring out what is there. So as I did this, I, I came to the conclusion that he's not even talking about physical sickness, okay? Now, I th I'd say probably most of you came to church thinking that we're going to be talking about what to do with somebody who's f very physically sick and who needs physical healing, okay? I don't think that's what he's talking about. I say that for two primary reasons. Stay with me. Don't turn me off. Just stay with me. Number one is the context of James. What is James talking about? You cannot find any chapter, any verse, any paragraph, but he's talking about people who are suffering in their soul, in their spirit, and many times being persecuted, even killed. That's what he's talking about. He starts it out, count it all joy when you fall into divers' testings, knowing that trying of your faith works patience, let patience have a perfect work. You may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. If any man lacks of God, let him ask of God who gives to all men delivery. That's where he starts the passage. And then all the way through, he's talking about the suffering. Now, when we get to James 5, it just intensifies. Now he's talking about people beating you and people pummeling you and people even killing you. And so I just want you to keep that in mind. He's talking about people who are really being downtrodden in their soul. Number two, and here's a key for me, is the word, the Greek word, astheneo. Now, I know most of you wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about there, and I wouldn't expect you to, but ask the Neo, New Testament is written in Greek. Why, how does, well, what does ask the Neo mean? It's used 14 times in the New Testament epistles. Are you with me? 14 times. You know how it's translated 11 out of 14 times? It's translated as weakness, secondary, without strength. So when it talks about a weak brother, astheneo, I was with you in weakness, astheneo. Eleven times, three times it's used a physical illness. Twice of Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 4, a dear friend of Paul's, twice it's used a physical sickness there. He was sick, yes, nigh unto death. And then with a disciple of his, a dear brother named a co-worker, Trophimus, second Timothy 4.20. That's where he says, my Timothy, uh, uh, Trophimus, I have left at Miletus sick. 
Now notice, Paul, who had the gift of healing, had the gift of miracles, was an apostle, left his, one of his best friends sick in, in Miletus. Three times. That's, let's just say 20% it's used of physical sickness. 80% of the time it's used what? Of weakness. Now, just supposing you, you're reading James for the first time. You've never read it before. And now you open your Bible, you turn to James 5, and just suppose the translators would say, would have put this down in verse 14 or verse 13. Is any among you suffering, let him praise, any among cheerful? Then he says in verse 14, is anyone among you weak? Wouldn't that change your mind of what he's talking about? And the interesting thing is the, in, in, when you look at the text, usually it takes a primary meaning of a word to translate that word. You don't take a secondary or a third meaning of it to translate. If it's used 11 out of 14 times, why wouldn't you translate it like you translated it any other time? Is anyone weak among you? I think that's what he's talking about. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, here's a, a very appropriate, we don't have time, obviously, to look at all 11. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with asphemeo. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am, same word, asphemeo, when I am weak, then I am strong. So, assuming James has spiritual weakness in mind here, his instruction is to those who do not feel strong in the faith. They're losing heart. They've been browbeaten. They've seen their brothers and sisters die. They've seen the persecution. They've suffered the blows. And they're starting to think, is this even worth it? Do I really want to be called a Christian? Is this what I get out of following? Here's the best thing I think I could do for you to understand is to point you to Afghanistan. Because all of our minds and hearts are, are thinking of Afghanistan, not only for our American servicemen, etc., but for the body of Christ there. Can you imagine all these sheep huddled today in Afghanistan? Knowing Al-Qaeda's there, Taliban's there, ISIS is there. They're butchers. Every one of them are butchers. These Christians know they're next. They're not satisfied with killing you. They'll take your children and they'll hang them in front of your eyes before they slit your throat. They'll rape your wife before they put you to death. That's what they do. That's who they are. Now imagine you're huddled in your little hut somewhere. And they're tracking you down. They've got the names. Think any of them are wondering about whether it's worth it or not? Do you think some are losing heart? Most of whom have not even been trained like you have in biblical death, depth? I think those are the exact people that James is referring to here. People who have hit rock bottom. Did you ever get so low, so hurt, that you couldn't even find words to pray. I think most of us have been there. It's, the words just don't come. And you just feel so weak. What do you do when you get that way? 
you need to get around somebody who's strong, right? So what do you do? You call the elders. They're supposed to be strong, spiritual men of God. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Is anyone weak among you? Are you throwing in the towel? You feel like giving up? Let him call for the elders. And boy, they come and they surround you. You say, well, what's the anointing of the oil? I don't know. I know there are two normal things we think of. Number one, it's a symbolic thing of the Holy Spirit. But then you know what it may be. But I think it's I think it is medicinal. I never used to. I think it is medicinal. And I went back to, I went back to uh, Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, remember? After that person was beaten and pummeled, left, it says he was half dead. And then the Good Samaritan came along. What did he do? He took him and he poured what into his wounds? He poured oil and wine, remember? Because oil had medicinal value back then. These people have been pummeled and beaten. They've got open wounds. Call the elders. They'll come. They'll pray. They'll give you medicinal help. They'll do everything they can to help you. Well, it made the Baptists mad at me. It made the Pentecostals happy. The only people I'm hoping are still here are Roman Catholics and Presbyterians. <laughs> you take it and you think about it. Don't believe it just because I said it. Search it out. Just be, oh, come with an open mind. Lord, what do you have there? Sinfulness calls for prayer. That's the fourth area. Sinfulness calls for prayer. Notice he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great powers that is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently, might not rain, didn't for three years, six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. Now the context is the same as the previous verses. Sometimes, now listen, sometimes when I am so beaten down in the soul, it can bring a physical illness as well. We know that. Some people, you get so low, you can feel sick. You can feel sick at your stomach. We know that. And so it could be that some of this, he's saying, all he's saying is this. If something like this happens to me, if I'm low, if I'm sick, you know one of the first things I do? I, I take the words of the psalm. Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Sometimes there might be sin in my life I'm not even aware of. You say, well, you're saying sin can cause suffering? Yes, I am. I'm not saying in every case of suffering or sickness it's resulted, it's because of sin. What I'm saying is it's a possibility there is sin involved. And I need to call the people around me, the strong people. They're the elders, they're the spiritual leaders. And then I need to confess. Don't, go, don't you go around confessing your sins to just every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Don't be dumb. That person's probably got the gift of gossip and they can't wait to tell everybody else what sins you have confessed to them. Who do you go to when you need to convey? You go to strong people you trust, people of integrity, people of spiritual standing. Let me say it this way. If there are those of you who are struggling with sins that we would call basically about the idea of addiction, if you're, if you're suffering with uh, uh, alcohol, drug addiction, pornography, uh, gossip, immorality, whatever, and, and you've got an addiction that way, you're not going to get the victory on your own. 
It's not going to happen. You get men, or if you're a lady, you get women around you, spiritual godly people. You meet with them regularly. You get accountability. You tell them, I, I fell this last week. Just had a brother tell me that. What do you do then? Batter them? No, you pray. You say, I'm with you. We'll get through it next time. You don't have to live under that burden. But what you need is people around you. Thank God we got them at Osterville Baptist, men and women alike. Okay, I'm going to finish it up. Here's the fourth verses 19-20. Doesn't get any easier. So we deal with watchfulness, truthfulness, prayerfulness, now helpfulness. My brothers, if any among you wander from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What in the world is he talking about? I think there's two possible interpretations. As you might guess, I have my preference on one, but either one could be right. Number one, he's talking about evangelism. Could be that. I don't know. I don't think so, but it could be. We're in an assembly, and all of a sudden you look around, and you start getting to know people, and cetera, and cetera, and cetera, and after a few months, a few years, and cetera, you say, you know, I wonder if John's even saved. Now, I didn't mean John to pick out a particular. I don't know if Mary is saved. And so you get a burden on your heart, and you, then you want to meet with that person and say, does this person really know the Lord? You got it? So it could be evangelism. You see a man who's a woman who's sinning. And then you get together with him, and uh, he who brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So you save him from an eternal death in hell. You know, cover a multitude of sins. But I think there's another interpretation that seems more in the context. And it's that James is referring to genuine believers. Now, this is my, I, my, my understanding. Who have strayed from the truth and continue in that unrepentant lifestyle. And people have gone. They've talked to them. Spiritual leaders have gone to them. Parents have talked to them, etc., etc. And that person says, no, I'm going to do my thing. So they're living in an immoral lifestyle. They're living contrary to the word of God. People gone they lovingly they tried to uh, to bring him out of that state and they just said no i'm just going to do it and they've been beaten down and and now they're just leaving the church and i think james is referring to here what could be called and was called by the apostle john the sin that is unto death what is that it's not a particular sin like gossip or whatever it's a it's an unrepentant heart who insists on rejecting the will of God and the word of God. And just says, no, 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 no. The person's a true believer. No, 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 no. I'm not going to change. Now, we'll probably hear about, a little bit about this next Sunday when we come to the Lord's Supper because Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says this, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that is, he partakes of the Lord's cup, he eats the bread of the table, and yet he does so knowing that he's living a sinful lifestyle, etc., etc. He doesn't confess this, and he drinks a judgment on himself. That is why, now notice what he says, that's why many of you Christians are weak, why many of you believers are ill, and why some believers, what? Have died. Sin unto death. You say, well, I don't know when it happens. You say, well, am I in danger of that? Yes, you are. If you're an unrepentant Christian sinner, if you continue to resist and rebel and live a sinful lifestyle, you bet you're in, in danger of that. 
So God takes you home to what we might even call a premature death. He says, do you know people like that? Go after them. Love them. Win them back. And if you win that person back and they do repent, he says, you've saved a person from his death, from his physical death. And he's back to active faith again. We've met James, I hope. Now we say goodbye to James. Farewell, Brother James. He's really put the test to us, hasn't he? So, where are you standing? Do you know the Lord? Are you sure? Number two, you know the Lord. Are you walking by faith? And sometimes, you know, we come to a service like this and at the end, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have a very short invitation. And with one of the invitations, I use this card. I've used it for over 30 years. It's God's will for my life, whatever, whenever, wherever. Lord, I'm, I want you to be my Lord and Master. That's for those of you who know the Lord, but you just want to rededicate your life. You look at your life in light of James and says, you know, I just need God to do something in my life. And so we're going to give you that opportunity, and you can just sign it, have uh, one of the elders or pastor sign it, stick it in your Bible. You've got it there every time you open your Bible, your memory of this. Others of you need to come and say, you know, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be sure before I leave today, Okay. Others of you may be suffering, and you're just downtrodden, you're beaten down, you say, I really need prayer from, from, from my spiritual leaders, and you might come and just ask for prayer. May I just ask you to do this before we go to prayer? When you come, and if you come forward, please let the person in front know why you're coming. They can't read your mind. You might say, I want to be sure I'm saved. You might say, I just want prayer, I'm, I'm hurting. You might say, I want to dedicate my, I'm a Christian, but I want to de dedicate my life to the Lordship of Christ. Let the, let the elder, let the pastor know. So let's pray. I'm going to ask Josiah, the elders, to come forward, if they would now, as, uh, as I'm praying. And then after we pray, Josiah is going to uh, lead us and sing the song we sang earlier. And we're going to stand, and then we're going to give you the opportunity just to step out of the chair where you are and just to come and come up to any one of these. And no one's going to badger you. No one's going to embarrass you. But you know what it is to me? It's driving a stake in the ground. I look back to two stakes I drove in the ground. I'm so glad for them. When I got saved and when I committed myself to the Lordship of Christ, I went forward and I drove my... And I'm so glad they have, they're helpful for me. I can look back and not that I've... Uh, haven't failed since then. It's just that I made that... I have decided to follow Jesus type of thing. Okay. Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then Josiah is going to begin singing. And as soon as he, as soon as I'm done praying, if God has touched our, you come, you come. Okay, don't wait on anyone else. You come. And one other thing is, I pray, just pray this to God. God, do you want me to go forward? If He says no, please don't come. But if that small, quiet voice is saying, you know, you really need to drive that stake in the ground publicly, you come on up here. Okay, let's pray. Lord, have Your way. We realize unless the Holy Spirit does the work in our minds and hearts and in our will that it will be of naught. But help us, Lord, to be glad 10,000 years from today of a decision maybe we've made this hour. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.